So this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, I thank you for the word that you've given us in the Bible. And I pray that we will not take it for granted. I pray that as Pastor Chris is preaching his message, that you will make our hearts good ground. And that we will not just receive it and then forget it, but that we would um, ponder it in our hearts and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in the book of Ephesians. And we are going to be finishing up the armor of God this evening, so that will be specifically the second part of Ephesians 6, 17. And so as a, as a context, I'm just going to briefly tell you what's going on. We're going to jump into the sword of the Spirit, and we are going to talk about the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. 6 is the last chapter, and verse 17 is one of the closing verses of the entire letter. All that's left is pray, which is the most important thing. Pray, which is our power source. It doesn't come from us. It comes from without out us, from outside of us. We must call upon God to bring in the power. That's not next week, but the week after. So what we're seeing here is in light of all that we should be doing as Christians. Now remember, we don't do anything to become Christians, Jesus has done everything in our place that we might become Christians. Christianity is not a do this, that, and the other that God might receive you and accept you. Rather, Christianity is that Jesus did everything in your place. He fully pleased God. He fully loved his neighbor as himself. He fully loved his father, God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He fulfilled the law, the moral law of God, for you, for me. There's nothing left for us to do. All we need to do is receive the gift of salvation, the gift of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us on the cross by his death, burial, and resurrection. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, full and free, is on the table for you and me. All we have to do is receive it. Okay. Now, in light of being a Christian, in light of receiving the forgiveness of God through Jesus, we are now in enemy territory. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us. Because we're Christians, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so because we're now in a different kingdom, we are under the rule of a different king, the old ruler of this world is now upset and wants to destroy us. And so we have a target on us. Christians are all targeted. We see this in verse 12. Look, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly places does not mean up here in the atmosphere somewhere, way beyond our solar system. Rather, heavenly places, listen, is a place we wrestle. Do you see that? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Where do we wrestle? In the heavenly places. That means this is a realm of existence that's so close to us, it's as if you're in close quarters contact, hand to hand, head to chest, arm behind the back, warfare, yet it's invisible warfare. There is mysteries here when we talk about spiritual warfare. We're dealing with an invisible realm that is real, that is more felt than seen. Sometimes it does manifest itself in visible ways. But that is the exception, not the rule. Okay, the exception, not the rule. What we are tempted to do in America 
is, if I can't see it, if it can't be empirically proven, if it can't be studied under an electron microscope, it does not exist. If it doesn't fit within our theories, it doesn't exist. Friends, the Word of God is God's revelation to you of reality. And here's what you need to decide for yourself tonight. Will I have my own view of the world that rests on my authority? Will I stand, this is what I think about the world, and you're standing on the rock of your own assumptions, presuppositions, ideas, your worldview comes from you? Or will you stand on the greater rock, the more solid rock, the unshakable rock of the Word of God, which says, here is how reality is. Now, we're going to talk about the Word of God tonight because it is the sword of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. And take up the helmet of salvation, which we spent all last week on, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, let's talk about Revelation real quick. How do we know the Bible has authority? How do we know that it is true? Well, here's how we know. Because the Bible itself claims authority. And now you're saying, wait a minute, that's circular. So you believe the Bible has authority because the Bible says it has authority. Absolutely. And anything that claims authority must appeal to itself. What do you mean? Well, I believe in science. Well, how do you know science is true? Well, because of the scientific method. Oh, so you're appealing to science to prove that science has authority. Well, I believe because of my reason and my intellect. Well, how do you know? Because it's reasonable and I can think... Oh, so you're appealing to your own reason and your own intellect for authority. You see, friends, any authority claim must be circular. But we, friends, now here's the difference for Christians. We are not appealing to our own authority. We are not saying, I believe the Bible's true because I believe the Bible's true. We're saying, I believe the Bible's true because the Bible outside of my opinion, outside of my experience, outside of my reasoning, outside of my presuppositions, claims authority for itself. Now, with that being said, when you add up historical evidence, manuscript evidence, prophecies fulfilled, nothing can touch the Bible in all of literature. I dare you to try to prove it wrong or in error. That being said, history doesn't make it true, Prophecy fulfilled doesn't make it true, and manuscript evidence doesn't make it true. They confirm its truthfulness. Do you see the difference? The Bible is authoritative because it is God's revealed will to us. So let's get into it, all right? We are, as Christians, basing our faith or trust. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. We are basing our trust in a book. But it's not just any book. It's God's book. You see, there's two revelations that God gives us. He gives us two books to understand reality from. Number one, the book of creation. You see, we can look out and see a blazing ball of fire hanging in the sky that warms us, that makes the plants grow, that the animals eat the plants, and we eat the animals and plants, and it makes the water evaporate and then turn into clouds and then rain back down and on and on the cycle goes. And you see... We're, we don't have a problem with the, 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 the preciseness that has to be happening between us and the sun. We're like, that That could be random, that could be chance, that just kind of happened. Do you realize that every code of DNA that's connected to you is different from every other human being's code? It's literally information coded inside of you that's so specific to you that if you prick your finger and leave a little spot of it as evidence after you've done some crime, they will trace that DNA right to you because there's no one else like you. Coded information. And all living matter has this code. Where's the code coming from? I remember Ray Comfort, who's like an evangelist apologist. He was walking around the streets, and he was dropping a, a book in people's laps while he was interviewing them. And it was a book. It had like frogs and sheep and camels, and it had all kind of creation in it. And he would say, is it possible that this book just randomly assembled all the words, all the pictures, all the printing? Is it possible that this book just came into being? And, and people were like, no way. That's impossible. And then he started to get into DNA. 
And he said, this book of DNA that's inside of every living being to a degree that we can't even imagine, did it just assemble by itself? The complexity of the DNA book far outweighs the complexity of a little children's book with animals in it, sheep and goats and camels. Yet we're more willing to believe that the DNA book just randomly by chance came to be along with the solar system, along with the new black hole that was just photographed. It all just randomly appeared. No, friends. See, the book of creation screams God's existence. Psalm 19 tells us this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There's not a language on earth which can't hear the voice of creation. And God's saying, listen, I don't need to prove my existence to you. Just go out and look around. It's enough proof. God's universe declares his existence, friends. However, we cannot know what we need to know about God simply by the book of creation. All we would know is he's powerful, he's complex, he's amazing, he's way bigger than our minds could comprehend. But we couldn't know specific things about him. Like he's loving, he's merciful, he's just, he's kind, he's willing to be so humble that he would become one of his own creation. We couldn't know that without the second book, which is the Bible. God's revelation, specific revelation to us. And friends, that's the sword of the Spirit. That is what we're getting into right now. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So let us, let us swing the sword around a bit. The swinging of the sword of the Spirit, or the Word of God, is our weapon, our offense against the attacks of the enemy. And listen, one of the main satanic lies that we must fight as Christians in 2019 in America is the materialistic flow of thought and culture that we breathe every day. Friends, we are practical atheists. We live our lives as if God does not exist, though we would not sign off on that doctrinal statement. We would not. We would say, no, he does exist, and, and Jesus Christ is his son, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and on and on we would sign off. Yet we live as if he does not exist. I do it all the time. You do it all the time. And, and, and it's the flow of the culture that we find ourselves in. We just drift down the screen, str- stream as if we had you know, little kid floaties on in the pool, and we're just floating down the stream of materialistic, naturalistic, 2019 American culture, okay? And we need to fight against that satanic flow of thought. It's a flow of thought. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world doesn't mean the creation. The world means the stream or flow of satanic thought that we find ourselves in at any time and in any place. There's an anti-God thought an anti-scripture thought, an anti-Jesus thought flow that we find ourselves in. And we must paddle with all our might against the current. Are you with me? Do you feel it pulling you? Are you tempted to doubt? Is this really true? And, and that, that right there is a lie of the enemy. That's a temptation. Is this really true? You can just hear the hiss in your ear. Is it really true? Are you really saved Does God really love you? I mean, if he did, would this really be happening? Would you be this unhappy? Would you feel this depressed? He doesn't love you, surely, if he even does exist. Friends, wake up and realize we have an enemy that is at your throat. Or as Peter says, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You and I. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is the Bible in its 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. The entire Word of God is the sword with which we must not only familiarize ourselves with, we must meditate on it, we must memorize it, and then we must use it against specific lies and thought patterns and worldviews. We have to if we're going to fight and survive in our culture. 
Paul gets this imagery. Paul is the one who wrote to the church at Ephesus and beyond the church of Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor and then beyond the churches of Asia Minor, by extension, us. Paul knew his Old Testament well and he knew Isaiah well. And in Isaiah, we see multiple prophecies or pictures or visible images of the Messiah who we know as Jesus. Okay, this is 700 years before Jesus came. But this is prophesied about him. Look at this. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about Jesus. Read it later. But with righteousness, he, Jesus, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I love it. Jesus is for the poor, the outcast, the voiceless, the downtrodden. Those are his people. He's like, my people, come to me. And look at this. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. The word, the word, the word of God. The the breath of his mouth. Now, Now you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just look at the sharpness with the the edge that Jesus speaks, and look what happens to him as a result. They tried to kill him here, and he escaped. They tried to stone him here, and he outwitted them. They tried to trick him here, and he used words. I mean, you can clearly see this striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. Just look at the response. Demon-possessed people run up to him. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to torment us before the time? You know, just chaos everywhere he goes because... What's happening? He is striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. No one ever spoke like this. For he taught as one with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Striking, you know, I just see this dust ball after his words strike the earth. And, and, and with the breath of his lips, the words coming out of his mouth, he shall kill the wicked. That day's coming. We live in the age of forgiveness and peace. Jesus is here to make peace with his enemies right now. He he says it like this. I imagine arms open, going like this. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest, rest for your souls. That's the message of today. Peter, put your sword away. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. In other words, now is not the time for war. But friends, make no mistake, the book of Revelation prophesies a time when Jesus is coming not in peace, but with a sword, and he will slay the wicked. Judgment day comes. Be sure of it. Be sure of it. And that breath of his lips killing the wicked is pointing to a day when the lamb is now the lion. And he is the lion and the lamb, friends. He's the lamb slain for the forgiveness of sins for the world, but he's also the lion who is coming back to take over. And we who are Christians are safe because the lion became the lamb who was slain as a substitute for us. We're safe. The word of God. Isaiah 49, 2, also a prophecy about Jesus. He made my mouth, this is the Messiah speaking, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. This is God hiding the Messiah, hiding the Savior. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Weaponry. Arrows, swords. You know, this is before gunpowders and tanks and missiles and stealth bombers. Psalm 119.11. How do we fight against the enemy with the word? Friends, this is simple, and we should, hope it's, we should hope it's simple and not complex. Here it is. Memorize it. Put it into action. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So your heart is the essence of you, the core, the center of your being. And listen, God's word needs to be stored up in there like a treasure. Like you have so much word all 66 books stored up in there that at any moment it could just spew out of you because it's stored up in your heart and you will be able to use it, listen, in the moment of temptation when Satan is attacking you. How do we know this is the pattern? Because it's how Jesus fought when Satan literally attacked him. You remember the story? He 
was anointed for ministry by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, remains on him, anointing him for ministry. And immediately, Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, the desert, snakes, scorpions, and spiders, to be tempted by the devil. Forty days and forty nights. And he was fasting during that time, meaning not eating anything. And the devil shows up, and the first temptation is, turn these stones into bread. Second temptation, throw yourself off of the temple so that everyone would see that the angels will, will take care of you and not let you dash your foot against the stone. Third one, he takes him up on a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you all these if you will but bow down and worship me. And Satan is tempting him, tempting him, tempting him. And Jesus is resisting, resisting, resisting. He was doing James 4, 7 before it was written. Resist the devil and he will flee. Look, Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him, that is Satan, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Luke 4, 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Luke 4, 12 to 13, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And we remember when the opportune time was. You remember up in the upper room, Judas goes to betray him, and we're told Satan entered him, and he went out, and it was night. That's the opportune time. But here we have Jesus swinging the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. The Word of God is using the Word of God as a sword. And he is slaying the devil, friends. Follow after the Messiah's example here. Follow after Jesus' example here, friends. Store up the Word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Friends, death of relationships, death of respect, death of joy, death of jobs, death, 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 and ultimate death forever. Friends, we need to fight sin. The devil tempts us to sin and to doubt and to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants. He wants to use you as an agent for his purposes. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. The writer of Hebrews is unknown, but this is powerful. For the word of God, the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What that means is, when you read the Bible... When the Bible is preached clearly, accurately, discovering what's there, not putting your own meaning into the text, not reading into it what you want it to mean, but rather pulling out of it what it actually means. When that happens, friends, you have this experience by which you're like, this is weird. There's something happening to me inside that I can't quite explain with words, but you feel this dividing of soul and spirit. Okay, now I'm going to get technical for just a second. Forgive me. I'm A dichotomist, meaning I don't think we have a soul and spirit. I think that we are souls, or other words, spirit. But the language here is pointing to the immaterial part of you. The immaterial part of you, the part that when your body dies, will go to be with the Lord if you are His, or will descend into destruction, waiting the final judgment. You without your body, that the immaterial you, that does exist. 
that outside of your body will hear, will be able to perceive, will be able to somehow communicate, will be able to perceive without brains. You inside. It pierces that part of you. And the bone and marrow, or I'm sorry, joints and marrow, you'd say the, the physical part of you. The physical part of you. I mean, you feel this. You feel that the word of God is true by experience. It's amazing. I encourage you, read it if you don't. Memorize it if you do. If you read it and memorize it, start using it. Speak it in the moments of temptation. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, meaning the inmost parts of you. It can show you you more clearly than your bathroom mirror, friends. And you know it. You've read it. You've felt it. You're like, oh. You read something and it's like, ah, oh, that's me. It's a mirror. It's showing you your dirt. It's showing you your guilt. But then it's showing you the way to be cleansed and forgiven. It's showing you the way to salvation and full and free forgiveness. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's pointing to the day when the word of God, Jesus Christ, will judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He will judge us, and we will have to give an account. It's a long text. It's okay. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 for we, Peter's talking about we who believe in Jesus, okay? The context of, of 2 Peter here is he's fighting false teachers, especially those who would say that Jesus is not coming back. Jesus is not coming back, okay? And this is being believed. It's being spread. He's slow in his coming. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So he, he's saying, listen, this is not mythology. This is not Zeus and Hermes. Okay? This is not Greek mythology or Mesopotamian theology or Egyptian mythology. Okay? This is true. And Peter says, you want to know how true it is? We were eyewitnesses. That means I saw it with my own eyes. Of what? His majesty. Jesus' majesty. And we're like, well, wh wh when was that? And he tells us, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, majestic glory meaning the Father in his glory, the glory cloud, when he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. When did that happen? Okay, at the baptism in one other place, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is talking here when he and John and James were taken by Jesus up onto a mountain and literally Jesus' glory broke through his humanity. The deity of Jesus broke through his flesh and he glue, not Elmer's, but he, he glowed up. That's what my daughter says. When we get break out those glow sticks, they, she's like, they glow up. Okay, He got bright. He shined. Glory. And Peter's saying, I was there, man. I saw it with my own eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, when did that happen? When the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We saw it. We heard the voice of God. And when, now 19 is crazy, okay? Watch how crazy this is. I heard it with my own ears. I heard the voice of God. I saw Jesus' glory break out. But watch this. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word, the Old Testament, more fully confirmed Wait, more, more fully confirmed than you seeing it and hearing it? More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter's crazy. He said, I'm telling you what I saw and what I heard, but we have the Bible which is more reliable than what I've seen and heard. But that's crazy. 
But you know that Peter's confidence in the 39 books of the Old Testament was solid. If he's saying, what I read in the Old Testament is more reliable to me than what I see with my eyes and hear with my ears, friends, we should be trusting in our Old Testaments. <laughs> see, we have a tendency, like if I can't see it, I'm not, I don't know. Like if I can't experience it with my own ears, with my own, I don't know. Peter's like, forget it. We have the word. <laughs> That's crazy. Feel what he's saying. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You know that the psalm, the psalmist says that the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And in a world without electricity, okay, how did you see? You saw by lamp, oil lamp, and you saw by torch, and you saw by fire at night. And without that, friends, imagine a world without electricity. No street lights, no city lights. Dark, dark. And Peter's saying, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. Meaning, you have a lamp, it's pitch black out. You're in the forest. And if you've walked through the forest around here, you know that you will run into some massively ugly spider webs. And as soon as your face hits it, if you're anything like me, okay? So imagine you running through the woods with no light. Thorn bushes, we're from Pittsburgh. Jaggers smacking you in the face. Spiders getting all over you. Stepping on snakes. I mean, terrifying, right? Eddie's will, Eddie will not go camping. He just won't do it. See, look at him. Never, never that. Never going camping, Okay? You have a torch or a lamp. You have some sight, at least a foot in front of you, right? The Word of God is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, okay? Thank God for headlights and street lights and the light on the back of your iPhone, right? You just... Until the day dawns. Okay, now, now, now look what he's doing here. Lamps are not that bright, okay? A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, meaning, you know, a little bit of visibility on the path here. But what's coming? The day is coming. What happens when the sun rises? You light the lamp, you light the torch, and it doesn't do anything. You can barely even see if it's lit. Look, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, Revelation twenty two sixteen says that Jesus is the morning star. He's pointing to a time when Jesus is coming back. That day, friends, is coming. That day is coming. And you will see him with your eyes. You will hear his voice with your own ears. And as a Christian, you're going to have new ears and new eyes and a new brain to perceive what you can't even imagine now. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. Friends, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So, so we're impressed by like 4K and 8K TVs. We're like, look at that. What if your eyes were like a billion K in the resurrected body? Able to see for miles with precision, better than a hawk or an eagle. Why not? Able to breathe underwater perhaps? I don't know. Friends, it's going to be awesome. Okay? Imagine with me, please. That's why God gave you an imagination. What, he, what we have here is the day is going to dawn. It's coming. The day is coming. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all. All right, first of all, I need you to know this, Peter's saying. No prophecy of Scripture. Remember prophecy earlier. It was the Word of God, the Old Testament. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, some person didn't just think up the prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah, earlier prophesying uh, the Messiah, was not just getting imaginative ideas. For no prophecy, verse 21, was ever produced by the will of man. But watch this. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That language, as commentators point out, is that of ancient sailboats 
you know, before motorboats, before cruise lines had those massive underwater engines, they had sails. It's the only way you could get around in the ancient world. And so if the wind was to your favor, the wind would drive you along the sea. This is the image. The Holy Spirit is driving those writing scripture along. He uses their experience, their intellect, their actual movements, their experiences demons. <laughs> Justin, you on that? My man. Okay. Their experiences to write, but they're not writing on their own. Listen, they are co-operating, co-operating. Those who wrote the Old Testament and New Testament were writing together, and the Holy Spirit directed them what they should write, yet they were not like Muhammad, where their eyes rolled in the back of their head and they just received. No. Their own intellect was used. Their own experience was used. Their own personalities were even used. Vast difference between John and his writings and Paul and his writings. Vast difference. Yet the same Holy Spirit filled the sail as they were moved along to write. This is our Bible, friends. You can have confidence. The internal consistency of Scripture is enough to, to convince me, okay? Now, I'm not appealing to the internal consistency of Scripture for its authority. The Word of God says it's the Word of God. The internal consistency of Scripture confirms the Bible saying it's the Word of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, if you go to Wikipedia... And just type in the Bible. What you're going to see is black text and blue text. Okay? And you like Wikipedia? Kind of. Eh. All right. When you click the blue text, what happens? It takes you to another page. And that page is full of blue text. And you click on the blue text, and it takes you to another page. The Bible is like that, which is why we can jump around. We're doing Ephesians 6.17 talking about the Word of God, yet all these texts are consistent. The internal consistency of Scripture is enough to prove that there is one author ultimately over 2,000 plus years. All right, let's keep going. Running out of time. Timothy was Paul who wrote the book, or I'm sorry, the letter to the Ephesian church. He was his son in the faith. He was his mentor. Okay? We don't think Paul had children. Okay? Paul had Timothy, and Paul had Titus, and Paul had Silas. These were his, his sons in the faith those whom he mentored and discipled. And so Paul is instructing Timothy, who is the pastor of what church? Ephesus. Yeah, here's the pastor that received the letter from Paul. And he says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay, now, now back in chapter 1, we learn from who Timothy learned it. Anyone know? His grandmother and his mother. We learn that, Timothy, from an infant, you knew the Holy Scriptures. From your grandmother and your mother. Knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The Old Testament. New Testament is not yet uh, canonized and put together. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice this. Paul just said the Old Testament is enough to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Yet, you can't directly see Jesus Christ in the Old Testament but he's all over it, as we'll see next week in Luke 24. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens up the Old Testament, and he shows everything that was written about him in the Old Testament. Okay? Here's one, one quick one. Sinclair Ferguson showed me this. Remember Abraham? Abraham's going up the mountain to slay his son, Isaac. And, and he says, where's the lamb? Isaac, there, there is no lamb because Isaac is the lamb. Isaac is going to be the one who is sacrificed. Take your son, your only son whom you love, sacrifice him to me on the mountain. Abraham, out of faith, believes, takes his son up on the mountain. As he's about to slay him, Abraham's like, or, or Isaac's like, Where, where's the lamb? God will provide a lamb. Now, interestingly, 
right as he was about to plunge the knife into his son, he's tied up, he's on the altar, Abraham's got the knife above him, and it's about to go down, and a voice, stop. And he looks over, and he sees a what caught in the thicket? A ram, not a lamb. Because the lamb was yet to come. See, see, the lamb shows up back in Exodus. Take a lamb, cut its throat, put it on the doorposts. Then the lamb shows up at the Passover, doesn't it? The Passover feast that's to be celebrated, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. And then we find out in Isaiah 53, like a lamb, like a, like a sheep before its shears is silent. And then Jesus shows up and his cousin John the Baptist points and says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can trace the lamb throughout the Old Testament. It was always pointing to Jesus, the lamb. And we could do that over and over and over with all kind of Old Testament prophecies. Okay, we don't have time, but we could. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How do we get salvation? We trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect life in our place, his death on the cross for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, proving that the Father was pleased with the sacrifice. Verse 16, many of you have this memorized. All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay? Scripture, God is the one who breathed it out by the Holy Spirit. Men are the, one, men are the ones who wrote, but it is profitable for teaching, which is positive, reproof, which is not so positive, correction, which is not so positive, training, which is positive, in what? Righteousness, right living, living holy before God, living the way that he prescribes for you his will. That, the man of God, that could be translated, a messenger of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in other words, when you have the Bible and you're using it, you are equipped for every single good work. We have all that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. You got it. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you as a Christian to enable you to walk in his will. All right, let's keep going. 2 Timothy. So this is the, the next letter in our Bible to Timothy, 2, 24 and 26. Now, I love this text, okay, and this is one of the last texts. Relax. What's happening here is the devil is mentioned, okay? Look down here at verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. What has the devil done? after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, that's frightening. I want to know, how do, how do I escape from the snare of the devil if I'm captured by him to do his will? That's what I want to know. Well, then we should go up to verse 22, shouldn't we? Let's do that. Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions. Okay, we, we know when hormones kick in, we know what youthful passion means. Enough said. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness. Right living as prescribed by God. What does that look like? Faith. What is your faith in? God and his word. Jesus and his life, death, burial, resurrection. Love and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do, Timothy, with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, who you are, Timothy, who you are, Christian. You're a servant of the Lord. You're a slave of Christ if you're a Christian. Listen up. Must not be quarrelsome. God is not with your quarrelsomeness. If you love a fight, if you just love to get in there and argue your point, God is not okay with that, friends. God doesn't want his people to be quarrelsome. Now, he does want us to contend for the truth, once for all delivered to the saints, James or Jude 1.3, but he doesn't want you to be a quarrelsome person. No one is attracted to someone who always has to win with words. Right? Did you love it when your spouse is quarrelsome with you? Or your kids are quarrelsome with you? Or your coworkers are quarrelsome with you? Or Siri is quarrelsome with you? You talk to Alexa and she talks back to you. 
All right. <laughs> Must not be quarrelsome, but what instead? What instead? Listen to this, friends. This is your charge. And I love that this is so positive. What am I supposed to do as a Christian? Be kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy it, doesn't boast. Correcting his opponents with what? Brute force. No, gentleness. Intellectual wrestling, fervency. No, gentleness. Tie him up in pretzels with your words, Paul said. No, gentleness. Do you see it? Gentleness. God may perhaps, God might do this, grant them repentance. I love it. Repentance is a gift. So for you to turn from sin, away from death and darkness, to life and light and the living God, that's a gift. That means you cannot force people into repentance. No matter how much you witness to them, no matter how condemning you are, no matter how backed up into a corner you've got them, you cannot make people repent as much as you yell at them to do so. No, it must be given you by God. Therefore, friends, if you have repented, you have received a gift from God. I like to think of it as a, as a repentance gift card. Just fully loaded. I mean, thank you. Okay? You are able because you've been enabled to turn from sin to him. You don't get to boast. You don't get to take the credit. And you don't have the pressure of making other people repent. You can't do it. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Okay, so God may grant them repentance. What will that do? Leading them to a knowledge of the truth, meaning the word is true. God's revealed scripture is actual reality. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He did what he said he came to do. A knowledge of the truth. And they may, so so now that they've come to a knowledge, they have repentance, what does that enable them to do? Look, friends, and they may come to their senses. Okay, have you ever been knocked out? Car accident, punch in the face, hit your head too hard. When we were kids, we were idiots. And I mean idiots, okay? We used to do this dumb game where we would go like this and we would breathe hard about 10 times, come up on the 10th, hold your breath, and someone would choke you till you passed out. How many brain cells have I lost playing that dumb game? And now you know why I twist words up and say things backwards and miss references. Okay, listen, I played that game more times than I can count. You played it? All right. So you you get it. You wake up, your teeth feel fuzzy. You're like, did I lose any teeth? Where am I bleeding from? We played it around cinder blocks, which was just foolish, okay? And, And I got stories. But when you come to your senses... When you come to your senses after being knocked out, the fuzziness gets a little clearer, gets a little clearer. And in my case, I'm looking up and everyone's over me laughing their face off. Okay, when you come to your senses, spiritually, it's kind of like that, except we're not laughing. We're like, yeah, you've come to your senses. We know that's of God. They come to their senses and escape because we know you've escaped the snare of the devil. And you don't even realize you've been captured to do his will. You remember Ephesians 2. We spent a long time there. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all, all lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Friends, that was us. That was us. And, and we've been enabled by God to see the truth, to repent, and to escape from that snare. We've been awakened. We've been made alive. How? By the word of God. And, and, and it's to be delivered by you and I. But listen, with kindness without quarrelsomeness, with respect, with gentleness. You see it? We know what we're supposed to do. 
David Pallison, who has been described as the Yoda of biblical counseling, has written extensively on spiritual warfare. And this paragraph is so worth me reading right now, so I'm going to. To win spiritual warfare is simply... Now, when I hear simply, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I don't have to light candles. I don't have to draw weird symbols. I don't have to fast for a year and then go get a rabbit's foot. To win spiritual warfare is simply to live as light in a dark world. I love it. It is to treat others with humility, patience, and thoughtful consideration. You can do this. It is to live as a conscious and contributing member of, quote, we the people, unquote, whom God has brought together by mercy. It is to have things to say that are worth saying. What would that be, David? True, constructive, timely, and filled with grace. It is to live purposefully amid a thousand distracting voices. It is to seek God's grace and strength. At its core, to win this war is to know God and consciously serve Him. You can do that. I can do that. We can win this thing. Here's our text. And what I want you to see in closing here is that Jesus Christ is the armor of God. Can you see, see this up here? Be strong in the Lord, verse 10, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. The helmet of salvation, Jesus is our salvation. The belt of truth, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The breastplate of righteousness, whose righteousness are we saved by, our own or another? I want to be found in him, Paul says in Philippians, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. We have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace on our feet. Friends, the good news is the good news about who? Jesus Christ himself. And we, through him, have peace with God. And we have the ability to have peace with each other now. The gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, is salvation by Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. Without him, we have no salvation. He's the one who won salvation for us. And also, we have the shield of faith. Friends, who is the object of our faith for salvation? Jesus. The shield of faith is our faith in Jesus that saves us from the enemy, his darts. And then we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Friends, Jesus is the Word of God. Remember the Word of God in Genesis 1 and 2 spoke and it had creative power and all things came to be. Jesus is, in John 1, that word of God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so what we see here really, really, is when we take up Jesus, we have all we need to fight against the enemy, don't we? We have all we need in Christ. 